Hi, I'm Sarah Chair from Born Supermart. Welcome to another episode of our podcast series where we share with you about newborn issues and hold discussions on the fixed income market. Today, we have Mr. Ling Pingming joining us to talk about a seldom heard about topic, bond originations. So everyone in us included, we always talk about, you know, what's happening in the market right now, about what bonds are trading on the market, how they're doing. Um, but let's take a step back. Let's rewind back to, you know, the actual issuance of bonds, which Pingming and the rest of the industry refers to as bond origination. Pingming was previously with DBS Greater China as a managing director and head of fixed income, and he has a wealth of experience in this field. So Pingming, could you tell us a bit more about yourself, please? Hi, Sarah. Thanks for inviting me to this podcast. My pleasure. A quick introduction about myself. I've been in the fixed income business for almost 30 years. Oh. My last experience uh, includes 13 years with Standard Chartered Bank, uh, where I was the head of capital markets for Northeast Asia and Southeast Asia, but at different times. Mm. Uh, in DBS, I was the head of fixed income Greater China. The bond business is typically organized into three divisions, namely origination, sales and trading. While originations deals with the issuers, sales faces the investors and traders make prices in the market. Thank you for joining us today. For our episode, um, I was actually hoping that you could share with us a few things that you've learned from your 30 years in a business um, that most investors don't know about. I mean, investors, they typically only see the end products, right? Like when a primary bond issue is launched in a marketplace. But what are some of the things that you've come across which are uh, important to investors that they typically do not know about? Maybe you could share um, two or three things with us today? Sure. Let me highlight a few key points to start off with. Um, first, distribution of the primary bond issues is typically via book building process. This is an interactive process led by the managers to ascertain the optical pricing for the issuer to launch the bond issues based on the investor's demand. However, at times, uh, we may come across issuers wanting the managers to hard underwrite the bond issue. So the first point I want to talk about is this hard underwriting. In other words, the managers must commit to a certain issue size and or the yield, i.e. the cost of the, of the bonds, uh, the coupon of the bonds, uh, even if there are instances where there is not enough investor demand for whatever reasons in a normal market condition. If that were to happen, the implications is that the bonds are likely to perform poorly in the secondary market. Um, to make matter worse, the managers may wish to unload their stock position, um, adding more downward pressure to the bond price. So I would say this practice is more prevalent in some markets compared to others. And they are, they are really on a case-by-case -case basis. So for this thing on hard underwriting, right? I mean, is not a case where um, it's because these issuers already have the foresight or they foresee that their new issue will not get sufficient investor demand, which is why they request for this hard underwriting to happen? Or is it a general practice, you know, like for issuers within a certain industry or a certain sector to actually request for this in general for all of their bonds? Of course, you know, there are, there are various reasons mm -hmm. for that. But generally, it's because some issuers are very price sensitive. And given sometimes the timing of the issuance, the market volatility is pretty high because they are more sensitive to the pricing. So therefore, they may request for this certainty of size and price. Given the kind of risk that these managers have to undertake um, in doing this hard underwriting, um, would it mean that they are also paid higher 
for taking on this request? Um, would there be a difference in fees in that sense? Or, you know, are they in a position to ask for higher fees for doing this? I'm not sure if this is sensitive though. Conceptually, given that um, the managers undertake a higher risk, mm. uh, they should be uh, compensated for taking such reasons. But having said that, sometimes it really depends on the issuer's bargaining power and also depends on the competitive landscape. Uh, what I meant to say, if there's a lot of managers chasing these premier issuers, then um, the additional pricing, the so-called additional pricing may or may not happen or different degrees, uh, in other words. Oh, that's very interesting. I mean, the idea of like premier issuers, I mean, having bargaining, higher bargaining power. Yes, that definitely does make sense. So with 30 years in the business, have you come across such scenarios like this? I mean, you'd said it's a case by case, but you know, have you seen it? How often does it happen? I would say different markets uh, have these practices you know, at different times. Because sometimes when the market is more volatile, you will see issuer requesting for that. Right, okay. So also it's very uh, timing sensitive. Yeah, it depends on the market condition as well, other than the profile of the issuer. Yeah. Okay. Are there cases where you can actually reject these requests? Of course you can. <laughs> then you become not competitive. Right? <laughs> You'll lose the mandate. Okay. Yeah. Okay. But how often do you see this happening? The thing about the lack of investor demand, right? And how does it happen? Because, I mean, there are always these professional managers who come along and they have to scientifically and artfully gauge the level of investor demand. And therefore, they would adjust, like you said, adjust the, the cost of this, um, you know, the coupons depending on this investor demand. So, I mean, they, they will gauge an appropriate yield for it, right? Um, the, the reason I'm asking is also because in my time here, at least from what, for what I see, lah, um, whenever we've participated in any newborn subscriptions, it always seems like we're fighting for allocations. So, you know, the lack of this investor demand really sounds like quite a rare case for me, at least. Mm, I, I think that's a fair observation. <laughs> Uh, because in, in the past 10 years, the fixed income markets has been enjoying uh, very steady growth, um, you know, quite a bit of a bull run, I would say. So um, chances are you will see a lot of the issuers doing well, but there, there will be occasions where, you know, some issuers, maybe because of their credit, maybe because of their size, and maybe they are first-time issuers, they, they try to test the market, may not be as successful, may not be as certain. As a result, so for example, in the Singapore market, you see some smallish issue size that's less than hundred million. Very rare, I believe. Uh, yeah, that that there were you know 60, 70, 80 million. Oh, yeah, um, a bit small. Yeah, for bond issue size, and uh, my guess is that uh, chances are they didn't get enough demand, because a typical bond size in Singapore would be hundred million, a minimum. So, so why would these managers take up such a small size then? I mean, the 60, 70... Since the, the market average is 100 mil, right? Why would these managers want to take up um, such a small size? So, sometimes it's really... Um, a, a few reasons for that. Sometimes it's really the issuers do not have such a big need for the mm. funding. Other reasons would include that um, the investor demand for this sort of uh, issuers, you know, considering their credit, may, may not have um, okay. the higher demand. Okay. Yeah. Maybe let's move on to the next point. What else do you think is important for investors to know about, but perhaps, you know, they just haven't come across this or is seldom known to them? Um, the second thing is um, regulatory approval process mm. uh, for primary bond issues. Because in, in Singapore, 
local issuers normally do not need any regulatory approvals, but that's different in different jurisdictions. For example, in China, each issuer actually requires to procure this NDRC quota okay. to issue bonds offshore. Uh, NDRC stands for National Development and Reform Commission. So it's, it started off uh, as a per issuance basis um, where the issuers went to procure uh, this approval to one where the issuer now choose to issue a few separate issuers uh, over a period of time as long as the quota doesn't expire. So in other words, instead of uh, per issuers, they actually get one lump sum, uh, say for example, a billion, and then they issue three, four hundred million each time over the year. Okay. The latter certainly uh, helped to relieve the bottleneck when there were many, many issuers uh, looking to issue uh, at the same time. It also avoided the situation where the issuers, when they enjoy very strong demand, and the issuers can't take advantage of their demand because of the limit of the per issue quota. Um, to cut the story short, uh, it is important for the investors to know the quota so that they have a good idea of the supply, whether it's on this issue or for the rest of the year coming from this issue. So as we all know, uh, supply does affect the pricing. I think that's really fascinating. I've never heard of this NDRC quota before. Has um, From your experience, has this quota actually been increasing year on year? Like, And like, how large a quota are we talking about? Could it be like 10 billion USD or like 20 billion? Because I think from issuers like Evergrande, you know, you've seen that a single issue can be 2 billion in size. So naturally, I think this quota would be rather huge considering how many issuers there are within China as well, right? So, so is there a number that you think you could share with us? So that's the difficult part. It's quite complicated. Um, why I say that? First and foremost, as an issuer, right? It's not a case whereby I, uh, I just take as much as possible. Lah. You know, market can issue, can take it, yeah. I just issue. Yeah. Because there are consequences, they have to bear in mind that if they were to take a billion and they only issue 500, the reg- next year you come back again, the regular say, hey, last year I give you 1 billion at the expense of other issuers, you know, because they themselves have a total issue, have a total quota, yeah. you know, and you didn't use it. So this year I'm not going to give you so much. Or I may delay your approval or I may, mm. you know, reduce your size. So it's not like free for all, just take first and see Correct. how. So they have considerations how much they exactly need. Yeah. So that's one consideration. Then the other consideration is also the regulators, from their perspective, if they want to embark on the expansionary policies or contractionary policies. Mm. So they don't want, say this year, they want to have a 10% reduction compared to last year's in terms of total volumes, uh, total issuance size, then everybody get cut back. But there are some maturities that is due, right? Yeah. So at least what I've seen is that um, the regulators will allow you at least the size that is required for you to do a refinancing via this new issuance. So you may not. So you have 800 million due for refinancing, but you will actually need another 200 million more. So the regulators, at least they'll give you 800, but the 200 may or may not get it. So that's technically actually another risk that investors would have to take note of, right? I mean, in terms of gauging, okay, whether this issuer, okay, this issuer, for example, has um, a certain amount uh, maturing next year and they need to refinance that. So in besides looking at, you know, what kind of like credit lines they may have, we also have to consider things like whether the regulator will give them that NDRC quota 
to go ahead and refinance that. Would, that be, would I be right in saying that? Yeah, that's a very, very fair statement. It is a risk. And so far, um, uh, the good news is I'm not very sure whether it has actually happened before that they, they cannot get refinancing uh, because the, the quota is not forthcoming. But having that said, um, we also see this, you know, less than one year's bond issues. Yes. Uh, that may have a role to play as well, where the NDRC quota is not forthcoming, is delayed or mm-hmm. for whatever reasons. And uh, the issuers may then choose to issue this less than one year notes for refinancing to bridge the gap. And that's why you see quite a few of these less than one year notes oh, issuance. Yes. Uh, some of them is because they need to refinance their existing debts, but quotas is being delayed. Yes. So uh, on that point, I think, you know, this year alone, um, I have seen quite a few bonds from Chinese issuers being issued under the tenure of uh, under a year. So my immediate instinct now is to really want to just scroll through all of our recent issues and be like, oh, hey, is that a red flag? Is Are they issuing this bond because they couldn't get the NDRC quota? Or, you know, was it purely just a short-term play for them as an issuer? Um, I think there's no straightforward answer to this. But is there a way for us to tell the difference? Yeah, I don't expect this to be a straightforward answer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, I think um, it, it is a, a fair observation um, there are, there are scenarios where the issuers really only need uh, a one-year issuance, like a bridge for uh, much bigger things uh, come at the end of one year. Uh, it may be of a smaller size where their real funding is much bigger, but in the interim, they only need a smaller size. So there are scenarios where there are genuine needs for a shorter funding. Yes, definitely, yeah. definitely. But having said that... Uh, I've also certainly come across issuers where NDRC quota is not forthcoming mm. and therefore they resort to issuance one year, okay. which is allowed. Mm, yes. Um, so I guess it, it then goes back to an investor's analysis of the credit profile of this issuer, right? To, to determine whether this is going to be a red flag for them or, you know, would this be a, an, an investment that they would be comfortable with, right? Uh, for investors should find out exactly what's the reason as much as possible. Mm. Yeah. And that certainly is one of the considerations when they evaluate the overall credit of the issuer. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, another question I have about this NDRC process and approval is that does the approval process take very long? Um, you know, typically how far in advance would um, an issuer need to start applying for this NDRC if they want to issue a bond? Wow. Um, based on my experience, mm. it's really, really on a case-by-case basis. Um, and therefore, the banks typically start the process as early as possible because of the uncertainty of the timing. Meaning to say, as soon as an issuer comes to you or you approach an issuer and they say, okay, I think I'm gonna, I want to issue a bond. Is it as soon as that process starts that you start applying for this NDRC approval already? Would it be as early as that? or Yeah. Just- it oh. can be it can be as early as it can be as early as that, yeah, oh. uh, because it can be very fast, but it can also be very slow or not even forthcoming. Okay. Yeah. Mm. Well, that is typically the case when it comes to these approval processes, I suppose. Um, the other thing is that right because when it comes to investing in these bonds, I think a lot of investors we 
for me, I've never heard of this NDRC. Okay, so um, I can imagine that there are other investors out there who may have invested in these bonds from these Chinese issuers without also without knowing about NDRC and perhaps not realizing that this quota approval is required. So is there a way for investors to go and find out more about this NDRC or to you know find out about the NDRC for a certain issuer? Hmm. Oh well, to answer to answer this question, um, a bit of a history. Mm, great, uh, I love. Because because this policy, you know, is uh, implemented, you know, um, a few years ago. Uh, when it first started, as mentioned, it was a per issuance basis. Mm. So um, it is quite normal then uh, for investors when they're on the roadshow, investors will ask, have you obtained the NDRC approval for this mm. issuance? Uh, when the issuers embark on a non-deal roadshow, for example, or it is very common for investors uh, during the roadshow to ask, have you obtained this NDRC approval? Because mm-hmm. that will also give them a, a sense of the timing when the issuance is going to take place. But can I just ask, these investors that you just mentioned, right? Mm. are they typically your institutional investors? Which is why they already know about this thing about an NDRC and all. So they have that prior knowledge to go and be able to ask that question and make that analysis for themselves? True. Typically, the institutional investors will be the one that is attending the roadshows. Mm. Um, but of course, the retail investors, through their private banks, I will see. also attend the roadshows. So the private banks can also uh, ask the same questions. Okay. So it becomes a norm for these investors to ask when these regulations are first implemented. It, it is quite common for the investors to ask during roadshows. So then as a result... You know, it's, it's not like now it becomes very normal uh, for if you were to ask your private banks or uh, it's, it's very normal for them to ask, so what's the NDRC quota you have? Okay. Yeah. How much are you expecting to issuance this year? Mm. What is the use of the proceeds? Mm. Uh, because they know that uh, how much bonds is maturing this year. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Um, so it's not like it's a question that the issuers shy away from, just to check. They are very forthcoming, very um, happy to share this information with investors, right? Just to, just to make sure. Yeah. Okay, that's um, great. <laughs> obviously, it's a need-to-know basis. Mm, okay. So in other words, if the investors were to ask, typically they won't shy away. Okay. So for our listeners out there, if you didn't already know about NDRC, now you do. Um, if you are planning to invest in bonds by Chinese issuers um, moving forward, then you know now this is a question that you can ask your advisors, your brokers, or your RMs. So um, unfortunately, we have run out of time. Um, I think time always passes really quickly whenever you're having such insightful conversations. Um, thank you again, Pingming, for joining us today, um, taking the time you know, to share with us your experience. Um, we really appreciate it. Sure. My pleasure to be of assistance. This episode was brought to you by Bond Supermart. I'm Sarah Chera, and our guest speaker with us today is Mr. Ling Pingming, who was previously Head of Capital Markets for Standard Chartered and Head of Fixed Income for DBS Greater China. Follow Bond Supermart on Twitter, Facebook, and Telegram to get first-hand updates on new bond issues, credit updates, and special events. For bond information and articles, visit our website, bondsupermart.com. Thanks for listening. We'll see you soon. Mm-hmm.